We don't have a whole lot of podcasts left in this calendar year. We were talking about it before we began, so we got to make what's left really good. It's Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn. I'm here with Lisa Garvin and Layla Tassi. Laura Johnston got up at 4.30 today, sent me some emails, then got on the road to go watch her son play hockey. Laura, we hope you're having a good time. Let's begin. Clevelanders were not the only people horrified by a driver's reckless disregard for life that resulted in the death of an on-duty firefighter, Johnny Tetrick. Ohio legislators are too, and they're passing a law in response. Lisa, what would that law do? Yeah, the House voted to amend Senate Bill 185 yesterday to include tougher sentences for, for vehicular homicide before they passed it. So this would amendment would require a five-year minimum prison time for aggravated vehicular homicide when it involves a first responder, such as an EMT or a fire person. Current law only has that requirement for law enforcement or Bureau of Criminal Investigation officers. So, you know, and apparently they weren't aware that the EMTs and the fire people weren't covered under that. So the amendment came from uh, Cleveland Democrat Bride Rose Sweeney and uh, Strongsville Republican Tom Patton. The amendment vote was unanimous. But the bill itself is is another thing entirely. The bill, Senate Bill 185, only passed 55 to 22 in the House. Senate Bill 185 has other things. So it, it first of all, it bans law enforcement officers from banning guns being sold or carried where a riot is occurring or might occur. It also declares gun stores essential businesses that must remain open during emergency declarations like the COVID shutdown. Um, the Democrats who oppose say the bill doesn't make sense. It takes away home rule authority. But then again, they added this. And this was obviously you know, adding the tougher sentence for vehicular homicide is obviously um, in response to Houston fireman, uh, Houston, Cleveland fireman Johnny Tetrick, who was killed November 19th on I-90 while he was assisting on an accident. Well, the the thing about this that I think is important is when you see the flashing lights on the highway, you really are supposed to to heed it. And and if there, if there's a big fire truck diverting traffic or if they've blocked the road, they do it for a reason. And so when when people do what happened here, they just go racing around it. It's it's so reckless and so dangerous. I don't know if you've ever been stuck on the side of a high-speed highway. My wife's car was totaled after she hit a deer a couple of years ago, and I I was close by. I was able to get with her, and we sat together in my car by the highway for I don't know, an hour before the tow truck came. And it's kind of terrifying. It is. People are flying by at 75, 80 miles an hour within a few feet of you. And it's just, you're in a, in a pretty reckless place. So for somebody to do what this guy did to, to make those penalties even harsher is a good idea. Mm -hmm. People have to be discouraged. I mean, Johnny Tetrick, by all accounts, was a true hero out helping rescue somebody from an accident. And this buffoon just decided I'm a better than all of you raced around, slammed into him and then kept going. I mean, it, it's 
it's on video apparently. And it, it was clear as day what he did. So yeah. I, I salute him for doing it on the gun stores as essential business. I, I you think about essential business, right? You think about grocery stores and pharmacies and things. How in the world <laughs> can you say a gun store? Oh, oh, the power's out. Let's go to the gun store. Right. It just makes no sense. Well, you got to keep the people from looting your stash of toilet paper. I mean, that's what it's about. So, you know. <laughs> it's just the craziest thing. It'd be like saying, hey, a chain store is a, a chainsaw store. It's an essential business. You know, I mean, it's just, I don't get it. It's it's one where, what are these guys doing? How do they look themselves in the mirror? We I said it before the podcast. We keep doing this to ourselves. We elect these bozos who then create these laws that make no sense. And then we wonder, what, how do we live under this? And then we elect them again. This is a crazy idea. The, the, if you shut down a city because of a riot, you, the, the, the key things for life are what you need. You know, people, if they need oxygen, they need to be able to go pick up their oxygen and food and drugs like, like Mike DeWine did during the pandemic. But now, the gun store. Let's put it in there. Why not the sporting goods store? <laughs> and so they added this, you know, this uh, really nice amendment to kind of a crappy bill. Yeah. Yeah. It's just that we, we live in a crazy state and it's I, getting. I would, I'd probably worse. make the argument that the liquor store is probably the more essential business. <laughs> <laughs> and, and the medical marijuana store, you know, right. you can make yes. the case for that. It's today in Ohio. The basic purpose of Frank LaRosa's proposal to take power away from Ohio voters remains alive in the Ohio legislature, but legislators on Thursday removed one of the more ridiculous parts of it. Layla, what did they do? Well, the original proposal would have required 60% of voters to approve a proposed amendment to the state constitution, but that threshold would have applied only to proposals that are initiated by the public. It would not have applied to those that originate from the legislature that that have to head to the ballot. So those would, ha would have still been able to pass with 50% plus one vote. But this week, Republicans realized that Voters aren't going to like that if like that it's it's only their proposals that must meet that higher bar. So to give this thing a better shot at winning over voters, they amended this measure to also require 60 percent voter approval to pass state constitutional amendments proposed by state legislatures, state legislators. Uh, Andrew Tobias tells us that it's it's unclear if this will make it to a floor vote during the lame duck, but it would almost be necessary if Republicans want to get this on the ballot for the May 2nd election. And, and of course, it seems pretty clear why they're rushed. They're trying to enact these tougher requirements in time to thwart any attempts to enshrine abortion rights in the state constitution or to head off any other liberal proposal like a $15 statewide minimum wage. So that's isn't where we are. The, isn't this the definition of tyranny, where the, the people in power do things that are counter to the best wishes of the population. The idea that that their amendments would get a lower threshold is the definition of it. We're more important than you. So Yay. our stuff will go in easily. You got to jump the high bar. That, it's amazing. If we pass this, we're doing it to ourselves. We are basically slowly disenfranchising ourselves by making our votes less valuable. And the secretary of state, the guy who is supposed to protect everybody's right to vote is the guy behind it. I mean, it's just amazing. So, yes, this was so preposterous that they said, you know, voters might not like it. 
I suspect every bit of this voters won't like, but as Laura pointed out yesterday, who knows what kind of lying commercials they'll put out there to make this seem like it's in people's best interest. Mm -hmm. And with the media dying off to put the truth out there, that might be the only message people get. Gannett announced another round of layoffs yesterday in Ohio. Most of Ohio is covered by Gannett news outlets. So Mm -hmm. who knows? It's really... crazy town. Andrew's story mentioned that a lot of legislators have been out sick lately. And so the Republicans headcount in the House hasn't hit 60 members in in a few days. And that's the number of votes that they need to advance this through the House. They need 60 percent of support from both the House and Senate to put this on the ballot. So let's see if uh, if those terrible colds keep keep that are circulating will keep uh, this from from going to a vote. <laughs> Taking the power of people to vote away is the definition of tyranny. And the sad thing here is if it happens, it's because we do it to ourselves. It's Today in Ohio. We talked about this next one after State House reporter Jake Zuckerman wrote a story predicting it. And man, he was right on the money. How much money is the legislature sneaking into an unrelated bill to dole out to Ohio nursing homes, which just happened to donate a lot of money to the legislators in the election? Yeah, the Senate Bill 110 allocates $615 million additional dollars to Ohio nursing homes. But this bill was passed within hours of its introduction. They basically threw it out there and threw it up for a vote. It passed 63 to 12 in the House. All Republicans voted yes, and most Democrats, quite frankly, voted yes as well. So the original version of this bill, Senate Bill 110, had $465 million of rent relief money and $100 million for COVID relief funding for the Department of Public Safety, but they removed that so they could fast track this nursing home funding. Uh, The Democrat from Cleveland, Bride Rose Sweeney, said it would have been nice to do this in a public process, but she voted yes because of the immense need. House Speaker Bob Cup, the Republican from Lima or Lima, Clear, He says there's clear urgency here. He says we must uh, preserve nursing home capacity with this money. Um, But uh, Beth Liston, who's a physician, she's a Democratic representative from Columbus. She's one of the few no votes. She says elder care needs proper funding, yes, but there are no guarantees that this money will improve health outcomes or, more importantly, boost caregiver pay. You know, I wish Tom Suttis was here because my memory on this is somewhat vague, but I, there was a time when the nursing home lobby was almost as powerful as First Energy in getting the legislature to just give them lots of money. I think it was during John Kasich's term as governor, he slapped that down. He shut it down. He didn't like the fact that they got all this favor from the state. And they kind of, we stopped talking about them. They were not the all-powerful lobby they were. It seems like we're going back to that, that these guys, they give a bit of money, they get they get everybody in their pocket and now they're being given a lot of cash. And you just wonder, given where we're coming from with First Energy and all the corruption there, what's going on here? I mean, this is just a gift to an industry that has repeatedly broken the rules. I mean, think about what we learned during the pandemic about how much abuse was going on in these places. And and how how little the caregivers were being paid. You know, even during the, the pandemic, they weren't even getting hazard pay that I'm aware of. Uh, one of the, uh, you know, Republicans who voted yes, Jay Edwards, uh, who from, from Athens County, he says that, you know, 
uh, he's received, and he's received tens of thousands of dollars from nursing home operators. And see, there are seven metrics that the Centers for Medicaid and Medicare use to measure, you know, the quality of nursing home care. Ohio uses only four of those seven metrics, which would be uh, unit the rate of urinary tract infection, infections, catheter placement issues, loss of movement, and bed sores. But you know, some like Dr. Liston say it's kind of toothless, and almost any nursing home facility could really meet those. And Edward says he's not opposed to adding the other three metrics, but he says, you know, um, all the new money should go to quality care. But here, here's the problem with the fast track is you don't get to talk about any of this. If you said, look, the, the nursing homes are in trouble and, and they need some help, th- you should have hearings to mm-hmm. talk about, okay, if we're going to give them the help, how do we verify it? Maybe you take 10% of the money to put it into inspections so that you know the money is being spent on what you said. I mean, you pointed out they got a bunch of cash during the pandemic, but the workers didn't get it. It just went into the pockets mm-hmm. of the people that own these things. And our legislature, rather than doing this to protect the seniors of Ohio, to make sure that this is quality care, they're just writing a check. Thank you for electing us. Thank you for paying for my campaign. Here's a whole bunch of state money to put in your pocket. And interestingly enough, those the few who voted against it say there were no options in this bill for home or community-based care. It's all about putting the old people in the nursing home. No other options. And they say there's a lack of quality assurance in the $7 billion that Ohio received annually from Medicaid. And we've heard nothing from Mike DeWine about what he thinks should happen here. And if he just signs this bill, it's a gigantic Christmas present to the nursing homes, which have a pretty terrible record. It's today in Ohio. How might being pregnant protect women from the devastating conditions related to long COVID? Leila, this is another Gretchen Crowen story about long COVID, which have proven very popular with our readers. That is enlightening. She keeps coming up with angles I haven't really seen explored elsewhere. Right. This is fascinating. A national study is underway on the effects of COVID on women who had the disease during pregnancy. And it seems our local hospitals are encouraging patients to enroll in that effort. But so far, the hypothesis based on clinical observation is that Pregnancy makes women more vulnerable to cardiopulmonary complications of COVID, and it could increase the risk of stillbirth because it could impact the health of the placenta. But the same biological mechanisms that make that true also could protect women from experiencing long COVID. Because the hallmark of long COVID is a heightened immune response that doesn't calm down after the initial infection passes, and the symptoms that continue to plague patients months later are thought to be this consequence of a chronic inflammatory state. We know that pregnancy suppresses the immune system. It's a natural phenomenon that protects the baby from being attacked by the mother's immune response. That means pregnant women are more vulnerable to acute infections, but it also could mean that the body is less likely to mount the sort of overactive immune reaction that's thought to be responsible for the chronic inflammation of long COVID. This, you know, if this hypothesis bears out in the research, the next question is how do we use that information to improve our COVID response? Could researchers learn how to mimic some of the immune changes seen in pregnancy to help prevent or treat long COVID in other people? 
Yeah, it's fascinating because the answer might be we should all depress our immune systems so that we might get sick, but at least we don't (laughs) be sick for the rest of our lives. Uh, It just when she told me about this, she just keeps exploring this, and she's a fountain of information. It's kind of fun to have conversations, even if they're a little bit depressing. And when she told me about it, I just wow, what an interesting thing. Of course, you know, once you have the baby, right, the mom's immunity goes right back up. So this is a temporary protection. But I guess it's that if you can contract COVID during the pregnancy when that inflammatory response might kick in, then you could prevent yourself from having the long-term effects of of COVID beyond pregnancy. And I guess maybe it it sounds to me like there's a critical window after your infection or during your infection when when that hyperimmune response could trigger what becomes long COVID. So I don't know, but I agree. Like, you can't really suppress one's immune system. They need it to fight COVID. <laughs> but how do you thread that needle? I'm very curious to see what this research shows us. Well, and her previous stories about how this is taking up resonance in very specific areas of the body, and that might explain long COVID were good. You ought to check out all of her stories on long COVID. Search for her name. It's Gretchen Crowen, K-R-O-E-N, on Cleveland.com. And you are listening to Today in Ohio. The politicization of teachers has been going hot and heavy in recent years, which got us to wondering whether people in Northeast Ohio were losing their respect for local education. Lisa, what do we find out? This is another wonderful treasure trove of data from the Baldwin-Wallace University poll that was commissioned by Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. So the question this time was, do you trust your teachers to be positive role models for your children? Do you trust them to teach age-appropriate lessons? And do you trust them to support your their students' academic learning and success? Now, if you look at the overall numbers, it's like, wow, 80% agree in the greater Cleveland area that, yes, they trust their teachers to do all of these things. But when you break it down by political party and ideology, it changes the results quite a bit. So uh, this poll looked at liberals and conservatives and Democrats and Republicans. So they're in different, slightly different demographics. So if you look at liberals, 94.5% of liberals, 89% of Democrats trust teachers to teach age-appropriate content, and that would include critical, critical race theory, comprehensive sex education, social and emotional learning. When you look at conservatives and Republicans, only 65% of conservatives and about 60% of Republicans trust their teachers to teach age-appropriate materials. When you look at the question about whether they trust teachers to offer academic support, of liberals and 88% of Democrats say, yes, they do trust them. When you go to conservatives, only 66% agree and only 67% of Republicans agree on that. That's still a lot. Look, it was a diabolical campaign by some people on the far right to go into school board meetings and raise hell on the false issue of CRT, which was not being taught in local schools. And they poured it on and Fox News and Tucker Carlson poured it on. And it it was a huge news story. And it was ridiculous. It politicized the schools. Often the people that were at the school board meetings weren't even local. They just were making lots of noise, drowning out the reasonable people in the room. And it didn't work in the election, mostly 
non-CRT lunatics were elected to the school boards. And then this poll shows largely people have faith in their schools and it failed. It was bad what they tried to do to build their base by making this into an issue. It's been very well documented. That was the intent, but it didn't work. And that's the good news here, right? Right, right. And an earlier poll that Baldwin Wallace did found that there were 75% support for teaching about race and racism. 46% of those surveyed said that, you know, we should be talking about gender identity in the classroom and 57% that sexual orientation should also be covered. So those are big numbers as well. So you, you got to, and then when you look at how they're trying to gut the state board of education and, and, you know, you just wonder what's going on there. I, I was talking to somebody that, that I value their thought process earlier this week about what would it take to, to have a platform where the reasonable people of this state on both sides can have a conversation without the fringe screaming so loudly that it makes everybody just want to put their heads back down and not engage. Cause that's kind of where we're at. The people that, that if you don't completely agree with them, you're evil are, are the ones we're hearing from, but the people in this poll are not part of the conversation because who wants to be in the room with a bunch of people who are screaming at you? And how do we get back to that? This poll is a clear example that most people are reasonable. How do we get back to them having the conversation? It's Today in Ohio. More than a year after voters created it, is Cleveland close to seating a citizen police commission to oversee police discipline? Lately, it's been a long time coming. Yes, they are finally getting close to impaneling this group. This is the 13-member body that Cleveland voters approved last fall. It will have broad new police oversight powers over officer discipline, department policies, and training. Yesterday and today, a city council committee started vetting the 10 nominees that Mayor Justin Bibb has submitted for their approval. Council got, got to nominate their three of their own no- people, people who have already gone through council's interview process. If these 10 prospects from the mayor win the approval of the committee, then the panel could be confirmed by the whole council as soon as Monday, and then they finally get to get to work. Yeah, and there's still the problem of it doesn't quite satisfy the charter. And right. so once the police get disciplined in a way they think is unfair, which is any discipline, uh, they'll take it to court. And and because the charter amendment was a problem, it's going to gum it up. I, I'm disappointed that the administration didn't come into office in January and work with the supporters of this amendment and say, look, we got some problems here. They've clearly been identified. Let's get a fix on the ballot as quickly as possible so that we can really make this thing work because now we're headed to litigation hell, right? Right. And it actually, it almost seemed like we were headed to litigation hell anyway. For a minute, this whole process hit this snag because the charter requires that members of the commission be broadly representative of Cleveland. And there are five different categories of people who are supposed to be represented on the commission, like, for instance, people who've been wrongly incarcerated and then exonerated, gun violence survivors, and an attorney with experience in police misconduct cases. And these 10 nominees from the mayor don't check all those boxes. 
And in fact, Bibb tried to say that his legal interpretation of the charter was that the city had to fulfill one of those categories, but yeah. not necessarily all of them. And the framers of the Charter Amendment were just outraged by that interpretation, and they protested Bibb's press conference about it. They said they at the time that they planned on taking it to court and forcing the city to meet the requirements, but they seem to have backed off from that aggressive posture. They say they'll just slow down, that that would just slow down the process of putting this group together. But they do hope that either the city will reconsider its reading of the law or that the federal judge overseeing the consent decree will recognize that this is a problem and force the city to to uh, follow the charter the way it was intended. Yeah, well, it's not just in Bibb's legal interpretation. It'll matter to be the courts. And you can pretty much 100% guarantee the police union will be taking it to court. It's today in Ohio. How many streets were named in Cleveland for people in the past year? And what's the process for doing this? How do people not get confused seeing those honorary street signs on roads they long have been familiar with? Lisa Courtney Astolfi dug into all the honorary street namings. Yeah, and the the city of Cleveland has started renaming some streets after Clevelanders after a a hiatus of a few years. This year, they've designated nine new honorary street names. And these are, you can see them, they don't change the name of the street. It's just like an honorary name. So there's like a different colored street sign. So um, some of these people I I recognize, Michael R. White Boulevard, that will be Erie Side Avenue between East 9th and Al Lerner Way. Uh, WKYC longtime newsman Leon Bibb is getting a street named after him. That's Parkgate Avenue between East 99th and 105th. And I want to note that all of these nine new ones are on the east side. And here's one with a long name, Mike Jules and Belkin Productions Boulevard, which will be (laughs) East 4th Street between Prospect and Huron. But looking at the guidelines, cleveland.com asked for a draft copy of the guidelines. And these guidelines say that there are, you know, no names of streets for anyone who's been dead less than two years. Well, three of the people on this year's list have passed including uh, police officer Shane Bartek, who was, who was murdered uh, a couple of years ago. So, um, and also, too, they must be sponsored by a council member. A council member is allowed only two names in a four-year term. But Kevin Conwell sponsored three of the names on this year's list. Um, Mike Palencic said that he forwarded Shane Bartek's name because it was requested by nearby residents and a daycare center that he was known at, and also by his fellow law enforcement officers. Uh, The council president, Blaine Griffin, says he will make new council members aware of the guidelines going forward. It's interesting this is going on at the same time we're taking Marshall's name off of CSU Mm -hmm. because a lot of people have responded to that by saying, can we stop naming things for people? No one is perfect. You know, things always come out later that that make you question it. So why do we do it? We don't need to do this idol worship. Why do we do it? But in Cleveland, it sounds like they're in high gear. Right. I mean, nine in one year, who knows what's going to happen next? A lot of these people I don't recognize. I'm sure, Chris, you do, and Layla as well. Another one, Principal Jacqueline Bell Way. Um, That's going to be St. Clair Avenue between East 110th and 113th. And uh, Eddie Backus Sr., who is that? Why should I know that name? Eddie Backus Sr. I don't know. Okay. Well, anyway, Parkview Avenue between 116th and 121st will be named after him. 
Can can I jump in? <laughs> I just want to point out that the former city council president, Kevin Kelly, was especially annoyed by this tradition. He hated all of the, the, the council was just handing out all these honorary designations. And it came to a head when um, one year council proposed giving the honorary street name Don King Way to a stretch of Cedar Avenue <laughs> that they didn't realize was the location where King had once stomped a man to death for failing to pay a $600 gambling debt. Mm, yeah. And it, that story went viral and embarrassed city council so badly. And uh, so Kelly, you know, within the subsequent years, put a moratorium on these street names. And now it's back in full effect, baby. <laughs> Why not just create some wall in City Hall? Call it the Wall of Honor and scratch in names. It's, it's, That's a good the, idea. The other thing is, the way in, historically Cleveland is taking care of the streets, would you really want your name on that stretch of St. Clair Avenue? <laughs> I mean, it's like pothole heaven. And I look up and I see your face. That's not really the best thing. It's today in Ohio. Ohio's big-time Jeopardy! champion of champions testified against it, and now it's dead. But Layla, is the bill to prohibit Ohio doctors from, from performing gender reassignment surgery on minors coming back? Yeah, House Bill 454 ha seems it's been put on hold until next year. This this bill seeks to ban doctors from, as you said, performing the gender-affirming surgery on patients younger than 18. It also aims to set a number of conditions for doctors to prescribe cross-sex hormones or puberty-blocking drugs to minors, including approval from a second doctor and that patients must have received counseling for at least two years, have had, have had any past abuse or trauma treated or have been screened for depression, autism spectrum disorder, or other comorbidities that may be influencing the minor individual's gender dysphoria. Uh, geez. So 25 Ohio House Republicans are co-sponsors of the bill, but one of the lead sponsors, Representative Gary Click, says he wants to wait until after the lame duck to reintroduce it. He says it would be too rushed to do it before the end of the this session and still get it right. Opponents of this are, are calling the suspension of the bill a big win for the transgender community, but I'm sure it's going to be back. Uh, but the backlash against this bill has already whittled it down from its origi original version, which initially sought to ban any Ohio minors from obtaining hormones, treatments, puberty blockers, and surgery to, in order to transition genders, even if they have parental consent. And the initial version of the bill also would have required schools to potentially out transgender students to their parents. So at least there has been, you know, the the voice, the voices of these these opponents has at least been heard and and uh, recorded and in and, and uh, has made a difference. Look, it's a challenging issue. So I salute the sponsor for saying, look, let's wait till next year, have the full conversation. We need to do that more. They should have done it with the nursing home bill we talked about previously. It'll be back. It'll get discussed, but at least that gives people time to, to chew on it. We need to have these conversations. And the way the legislature works in the lame duck, is you don't have many conversations, it's just ram it through. Mm -hmm. So it's a good move. It's today in Ohio. 
Let's have one more light one to head out into the weekend. Lisa, which is better at Giant Eagle, my perks or fuel perks? It's another question that our Saving You Money columnist, Sean McDonald, set out to answer. Yeah, and he found out that it's really kind of hard to say because trying to do the math and compare them is not apples to oranges. And it also depends on your grocery and driving habits. So, you know, um, I'm personally on my perks in Akron, you can only get my perks at Giant Eagle in Cleveland. You can either do my perks or Fuel Perks Plus. So just to kind of go through, yeah, I don't want to go through the math, but he's basically saying that Fuel Perks Plus is a better deal for those who spend seventy five dollars or more at Giant Eagle, and they're using the Fuel Perks money on groceries and not gas. Um, he said that. Uh, uh, my perks, he liked, he preferred my perks. He says there's a 90 day expiration on your points. There's better pricing on grocery sale items and so forth. So in his mind, my perks is better than fuel perks plus. I love the rigor he brings to these questions. His <laughs> columns have been unique. I haven't read a consumer columnist quite like him. He's tackled this with some real gusto. Check out its story. It's on cleveland.com. We're wrapping up the week of news. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks, Layla. Thanks to the absent Laura. And thank you for listening. We'll be back Monday to have another conversation. Mm-hmm.